I'm curious, how much goes on behind the scenes at zoos that people don't know about? There's just so much. I mean, even like what we feed the animals, we do research on how they're feeling today. I look at the hormones levels. So are they stressed? You know, we look at reproduction and they may be pregnant. There's not standard pregnancy tests for these animals. So we had to use science to develop these methods. Hi, I'm Cody Goff from the StressFreeCuriosity.com. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, we're going to learn what we don't know about the zoo, because curiosity makes you smarter. This is the Curiosity Podcast. Your local zoo does a lot more than show off cute animals. Behind the scenes, a lot of research is going on to help animals and the environment. And sometimes it's a dirty job. Dr. Rachel Santemeyer is the director of the Davie Center for Epidemiology and Endocrinology at the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. And she has quite the alias. Want to really get to know your animals? Never fear. Dr. Poop is here. Talk about your specific role and your expertise a little bit. Sure, yeah. I, they call me Dr. Poop because we use fecal samples to study what's going on inside the animal. So I'm a physiologist and I look at hormone levels, and these are little chemical messengers in our body and animals' bodies that help regulate anything from digestion to reproduction. And so because they don't have standard tests like they do for humans, they use me to, to figure out if their animals are pregnant. And so I can look at hormone changes for that. We can also look at how their environment is affecting them. So, you know, if they're new to the group, what's their stress levels? We can look at that. We can look at changes in their environment as far as like the season and how that might be driving reproduction. I mean, a lot of people own dogs and cats and dog and cat owners aren't probably typically checking the levels of everything you just talked about mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Why is it so important at the zoo to do this? And, and how often are you, are you talking about like daily or weekly samples for each animals? It depends on what the question is. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when your cat is stressed, right? And sometimes <laughs> our animals that we have, our pets are domesticated, right? And they're selected for these traits that make them good pets. Well, we have wild animals and they're treated like wild animals. And so we can't always determine what's going on inside them. So they may not show certain behaviors because that may make them a target for predation pressures like naturally in the wild, right? If they, they might be a red flag, if they're limping or they're showing any kind of pain, anything like that. And so they can use my science to look what's going on inside their body. And so I always tell the animal behavioralists, the animals can't lie to me. Because I actually see how they're they're physiologically responding to yeah. their environment. So don't try to lie to you. No, totally can't lie to me. Animal can't bluff at all. No. Just call it right no. away. Nope. Wow. Now, why is it so important to measure the stress levels? Because mm -hmm. we don't necessarily know what's what they all need in their environment. And so we can use this to evaluate how they're doing in their environment. And for species like amphibians, where you really can't see any behavioral changes, right? How do we know when they're stressed? How do we know we're not maybe giving them what they need or even in the wild, the habitat's not good quality. And so we can develop methods to look at these different parameters using physiology. But why is it so important to know if they're stressed? I mean, who, who oh, cares if this right. snake is stressed out or not? Right, right. Well, as you know, okay, we've all gone through that finals week, right? So stress is a normal response for us and animals, right? If we didn't have a stress response, we wouldn't react to something that was detrimental to our health, like driving in Chicago, Right. I mean, talk about your your horn hand, right? That stress response, you know, everybody in Chicago is really good at blowing that horn, right? Yeah. And so we need stress in order to survive, just like animals. But 
when you have a repeated stressor like finals week, you have a test every every day for a week. What happens to everybody the week after finals? We all get sick because a lot of stress or chronic stress can suppress our immune system, make us vulnerable to some virus. Somebody had some cold and we all got it the next week because we were susceptible because we had too much stress for too long. And so that's why stress can be a problem to the health of animals and for us too. Are there any triggers after which you'll look for particular levels, like maybe a really busy day at the zoo or really rowdy kids yelling a lot at the animals or any triggers like that? Usually our animals at the zoo are coping well with our visitors. It can be something like pressures in the group. Um, You know, when we have seasonal changes and it's their breeding season, there's all this sort of dynamics that go on with our, our group animals, right? And so they they may have sort of that setting up the territory, anything like that would, could cause some social conflict. And so we can look at stressors like that at the zoo that can be helpful for the animals because then we know that they need to be given more opportunities. We need to give them more enrichment so they can spread themselves out a little bit more. There's less competition. And so they can use my science to help evaluate these kind of situations. Should pet owners be doing this? Well, you know, some of the things you can do with your animals is, you know, like when you're cutting toenails or anything, how stressful that can be or taking your animal to the vet, you can do some training with your animals to make these situations less stressful. And that's what we do with our animals when we're we're dealing with veterinarians. The, the animal care staff does a lot of training so they can take blood on certain animals without causing any kind of stress. And so you can actually do that with your pet, too. You know, there's some things that, you know, are stressful for your pet and you can do some training methods or you can do, you know, those little coats that they have for the thunder, the thunder coats, you know. So there's different things you can do for your your pets, too, to reduce stress. The thunder shirt is a pressure wrap that's marketed to reduce stress in high anxiety dogs and cats. It's been tested in at least one scientific trial that showed that it could successfully reduce heart rate and stress behaviors in dogs. There isn't a study on cats, but if you search YouTube for cats wearing thunder shirts, I guarantee you'll have a great time. For some reason, pressure has a calming effect on all sorts of mammals. When she was growing up on her aunt's ranch, now legendary autism advocate Temple Grandin noticed that the cattle handlers used a squeeze box that applied gentle pressure to help calm the cows when they were being milked. She adapted that concept to create the hug box, a device that applies gentle pressure to calm and de-stress people especially those with autism. If you deal with stress and anxiety, you might be surprised what a weighted blanket or a good old-fashioned hug can do. You can read more about the amazing stuff Temple Grandin has done for the world on curiosity.com. You know, Ashley, this episode of the Curiosity Podcast is brought to you by Skillshare, and you can also learn how to deal with stress and anxiety with their help. That's right. Skillshare is an online learning platform with more than 18,000 classes in categories like business, marketing, entrepreneurship, technology, and more. Including stress management, mindfulness, and even introductory counseling and psychology courses. They'll give you personalized recommendations, too. So once you've selected a few courses, you never know what you might learn next. Look, lifelong learning is important, not just for getting a new job or impressing your next date, but for growing as a person. That's why you love Curiosity.com, right? And we've got a super exciting deal just for you, curious listener, to help you keep learning and thriving. That's right. We are super excited about a special offer just for Curiosity Podcast listeners. You, yes you, can get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. Yeah. Skillshare is offering Curiosity Podcast listeners two months of unlimited access to more than 18,000 classes for just 99 cents total. 
To sign up, visit Skillshare.com slash curious. Again, that's Skillshare.com slash curious to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash curious. Now, your latest paper is super exciting stuff. You have come up with a non-invasive method of measuring amphibian stress levels using only a Q-tip. <laughs> So how does that work? We call this our frog swabs. We were going to have t-shirts made because it's just so cool. Yeah, so people don't really think about our skin is actually an organ and it protects our bodies. Well, amphibians, their skin too is an organ and it can produce hormones and be responsive to hormones. And so I was sort of naive and I thought, well, you know, when you pick up a toad, it urinates on you, right? So you don't eat it, right? And that's how it deters from being eaten. Pretty good defense yeah, mechanism. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> and so I just assume, well, we're going to pick up some frogs and some salamanders. and They're probably going to pee on you. And we can actually get hormones from, from urine, as we know with human pregnancy tests. Well, lo and behold, if you live in the water, you're semi-aquatic, you're, that's not a good strategy because you're already wet and the predator's already wet or in the water. And so we had to come up with a different way to figure out their stress levels, because again, it can make them susceptible to diseases like the chytrid fungus, which is devastating tons of different species of, of amphibians across the world. And so we swabbed them for the chytrid fungus testing. And I thought their skin is an endocrine gland. Let's swab their skin and see if we can pick up any hormones. And sure enough, we found stress hormones. And no one had ever thought to even try this before? No. Sometimes it's just the, the simplest the solution. simple things. Yep. Yeah, even mm-hmm. you know the fuzz on the Q-tip doesn't doesn't cause any issues or anything. No, mm-mm, just no. like a literally just a store bought head to the pharmacy. Well, we get a scientific Q-tip. Oh, but yes. <laughs> okay, sure. Now you say you've got the special Q-tip, yeah. but still, just a Q-tip. I mean, that's yes. that's really cool. What is that fungus that you mentioned that is not so good for a lot of amphibians right now? Or yeah, the fungus. Yeah, it's a, it is a fungus, and what happens is it affects their skin, and amphibians can be. Sometimes uh, fully aquatic, semi-aquatic, or not aquatic at all. But they take in electrolytes through their skin. They can take in water through their skin. That's how they drink. And so this fungus attacks their skin and can harden it. And then they can absorb these nutrients that they need. That's not good. And and where's that happening? Everywhere? Yes, everywhere. Literally across the world. And they are the most endangered taxonomic group out there. And so there's a lot of, you know, everybody knows about sort of the mammalian endangered species, but they don't know that 20% of the known amphibian species we have are critically endangered to endangered. 20%? Yes. And the number is growing because this disease just wipes out complete species very quickly. You'll hear hypotheticals about what if there's some crazy new black plague that kills a bunch of humanity or something, but this is happening right now in the amphibian world? Yes. And what's so important about them is they are really good environmental quality indicators because they're in the water or they're semi-aquatic or they're in the trees. They're really evaluating what our environment is. And so if they're having a problem, we can almost guarantee that we are going to be having a problem. So that's why it's so important to investigate them and, and study them. Why do you think this isn't more headline mainstream news compared to, say, bees? Everybody knows about the bee problem. Right. But I, this is the first I've heard of the amphibian problem. Yeah, so bees are sort of the ecosystem service where they can pollinate food for us, right? The plants that we provide food. And, you know, amphibians really don't do that. Yeah, they're not really giving us too much unless you're in a country where frog legs are a delicacy, maybe. <laughs> right. But there, they should be raising a hubbub about it because they really like their frog legs. Yeah, right? but they may be farming them and not taking them from the wild. 
do zoo animals have higher or lower stress levels or do domesticated animals have higher or lower stress levels than animals in the wild or animals elsewhere or humans? That is a really good question. And I get that a lot because people are concerned about the animals we have at the zoo. And what I tell them is there's just different stressors for animals in the zoo versus in the wild. And so I actually go out to the wild and we sample wild black-footed ferrets, for example, and then we sample the, the zoo animals, ferrets, and they have the same levels of stress. Hmm. And we have to do that. And we can't use poop, which is always a disappointment for me. But we actually can use hair. And hair is made out of keratin and it has a blood supply. So these hormones get deposited into the hair. And so you can actually shave hair and look at a different amount of time of stress. And then it also allows me to compare between different populations because animals in, in the zoo may eat differently than animals in the wild because in the wild, they're not guaranteed to have a meal, mm -hmm. especially a carnivore like a ferret. It's whenever they're able to catch prey. In the zoo, we give them, you know, their diets constantly, you know, they're constantly fed. So um, there's no sort of stress of when my next meal is going to come. But that also means that they poop differently because they eat differently. And so, that's why you can't use it for And the that's wild. why I can't use it for, I can't use poop. I had to use hair. Got it. Because all the hair is the same, obviously. Right. And you're just seeing on a chemical level what the difference is in the hormones, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. not like the ones that are more stressed are just making, having gray hair like the president <laughs> or something. No, but you can see if they're really sort of compromised. And you, you probably notice this with, with people too, is that, you know, they don't have the healthiest hair quality, right? So that's not what we're really seeing with ferrets, but that could be a problem. So it's like the animals in the zoo might have different stressors. It's it's almost like first world animal stressors. Mm -hmm. like maybe I'm not getting enough sleep versus I'm worried I'm going to get eaten by something. Right. This is kind of similar in humans, isn't it? How, yeah. how some humans, despite how much better off you may be in certain ways than others, you still, I mean, problems are relative, right? Right. Stress is relative. Everybody's an individual and it's the same with the animals. You know, we treat them all like individuals, whether at the zoo or, in, you know, in the wild. And they all respond differently to stressors and different stressors. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the ferrets. So I want mm -hmm. to get back to that because you just got back from Kansas, yes. right? Now, you were working on the Blackfooted Ferret Recovery Project, and that was some field work. And talk to me a little bit about that specifically. Yeah. So I've been studying the ferret for 20 years now. It's a critically endangered species that we have in North America. And it evolved to be this specialist carnivore that feeds only on prairie dogs and these oh. are ground squirrels that you find out through the Great Plains. And what happened is when people started to settle out west in the early 1900s, they brought their cities, they brought their agriculture, and they brought their livestock. Well, there's a lot of human wildlife conflict with the prairie dogs because they eat grasses, but they also dig the burrows. Mm -hmm. So there was a government-sponsored poisoning campaign to wipe out the prairie dogs to turn the um, West out into agriculture fields and livestock ranches. So because the ferret mostly eats prairie dogs, we just about lost the species. Yeah. And we didn't know, we found the last population in the mid-1980s. And to save the species from extinction, they removed all the individuals from the wild. So all the Blackfooted ferrets that we have today came from these 18 individuals. And of those 18, only seven produced offspring that lived. So all the Blackfooted ferrets we have today, 20, 30 years later, came from seven individuals. How many are left now? Well, we have about three to 400 in the wild. And there's about 300 in the breeding colonies wow. in zoos. So, yes, yeah, so there's only about six to 700 left in the world. 
Right about now, you might be wondering, wait, ferrets are endangered? I thought people kept them as pets. That's a different species of ferret. The difference between black-footed ferrets and domesticated ferrets is roughly the same as the difference between a wolf and a chihuahua. Black-footed ferrets are lone warriors who hunt prairie dogs by night, then move into their victims' burrows like some cross between Hannibal Lecter and Chip and Joanna Gaines. Domesticated ferrets are active during the day, love friendship and belly rubs, and live on a diet of kibble bought from the store. Domesticated ferrets can't survive in the wild for more than a few days, according to the American Ferret Association. They are totally different animals. So what was the work that you were doing? So in the wild, we're we're evaluating their health, what diseases they're being exposed to, and we're also evaluating their for fertility. So we're looking at our captive population that came from these seven individuals, and their breeding success is not as good as we'd like. And so we're wondering, is it something that we're doing? We're not feeding the right diet. We don't have the right lighting situation. Is there something we can change in their environment to make them more productive? Because these are the only animals left in the world, right? Yeah. And so we're going out to the wild to see what their their traits are like, just so we can compare it to the captive guys. Yeah. See if maybe you need to play some more Barry Manilow in there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> we haven't tried that one yet. Hey, next experiment. You hear to hear first. Barry the- White. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. On the Curiosity Podcast. Got to get some, maybe some Kenny G, some sexy saxophone in yeah. there. Now, you going out and doing field work in Kansas, what does that have to do with the zoo? Do yeah. all zoos do outreach like this? Yeah, well, so this was research we're doing in the field, and we have a big research program. Some of our research is actually local in Chicago, where we're studying urban mammals like coyotes and small rodents. What do we have in Chicago, and how does the changing landscape, the urbanization, affect them? We've got some medium and big-sized rodents in this city, too. Yes, we do. There's some, like, cat-sized mice running around. Yes. Wasn't Chicago recently ranked the number one city in the— The radius city, yes. Radius per capita. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, yes. Was that surprising to you or was everybody uh, well, at the zoo kind I've of laughing? Close, yeah, I've lived just close to some of the parks. And at night you hear a lot of things going on in the in the grasses and the bushes. So we know that there's there's a lot of rats out there. Yeah. And some of the initiative is to study those. Chicago was named the rattiest city in the nation for the third year in a row in 2017. New York and L.A. got the next two spots. But that list was released by the pest control company Orkin, which based their rankings on the number of rodent treatments they did in each city. So maybe Chicago's just more on top of their pest control. Ever think of that? But yes, rats the size of dogs have been spotted in Chicago, and their numbers are growing thanks to the mild winters we've had lately. Look, if you live in Chicago, you can either have mild winters or mild rat infestations. You can't have both. So there's there's a lot of people in zoos that do research, mostly because we're trying to understand the biology of the animals. So we'll go out to Africa. We have projects to go out to Africa. We study black rhinos in the field. Of course, I studied their poop in the field. And then I've been studying wild black-footed ferrets for you know a long time because of these questions that we've had. And we also want to know why certain sites where we've reintroduced ferrets are more productive than other sites. Is there some disease we don't know about that's affecting them? Is it the habitat quality? They don't have enough prey species, so the the prairie dogs. Is there too much competition, like too many coyotes out there? And so we can study all that. And I'm again, I'm the physiologist. There's a lot of ecologists that work on the prairie dogs and the, and the ferrets, and I work with them. I, I'm basically a lab person, and I just take my lab out to the field. Yeah, and, and the black-footed ferrets, you said you've been studying them for 20 years. Was that because they were endangered or so scarce at the time 
that that kind of led you to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in terms of the field work, is it how do you decide kind of where to go out and where to study? Is it mostly based on, you know, an interest and expertise or is there like a national association that determines like a hierarchy of environmental mm-hmm. issues and needs and says like, here's an APB to all the zoos. Everybody get on the B thing right now. We got to fix that. Yeah. So my research has been looking at this zoo or husbandry effect. Can we make them more productive so that we can put more ferrets out to the wild? And so I've been targeting sites that have captive born ferrets that are living in the, in the wild. And so I could look at them. Did their traits change when they went out to eat prairie dogs or are they the same as when they were when they went out to the wild? So are they more, do they produce more offspring? Are they healthier? So we look at all these different traits and then we're looking at their offspring now born in the wild and we're asking questions about them. And what seems to be happening is the captive born ones stay the same, but their offspring are much better. So we don't know there's some kind of genetic component of that. There's also different selection pressures. They're under natural selection, you know, survival, the fittest out in the wild. So maybe it's the best ones that are surviving that, and that we're evaluating. And no one wants to see a species go extinct, obviously. But, and and this is maybe a little outside of the pure biology of it, but what's the kind of standpoint, almost philosophically or ethically, of zoologists, biologists, physiologists, everybody, the whole scientific community around, let's say you see an animal like the black-footed ferret, you say there's 18 left. Why is it so important to maintain them? Is, is that just a, a universal scientifically accepted truth that, mm-hmm. like, it's bad when a species goes extinct or do you know where the origins of that came from? Or is that like in part of your studies? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's some of it is we just don't know what their role is necessarily in the ecosystem. So the prairie dogs are actually a keystone species. Everything revolves around the prairie dogs. And that just is the system has changed because they used to have buffalo that migrated up and down the Great Plains. And now it's replaced with cattle. Right. They don't migrate. And so that's why it's a problem with prairie dogs. Yeah. Because they're competing for the grasslands. So the ferret, you know, or other any other endangered species may have an important role in that environment. And if you took that away, it may collapse. Now, for the black-footed ferret, they are just one of the carnivores that feeds on prairie dogs or needs the prairie dogs. But there's so much human-wildlife conflict with the prairie dogs that in order to save them, we use the ferret. That makes sense because the entire food chain and our entire ecological system is one big puzzle. And if you take one piece out of that puzzle, you don't know what's going to happen. So don't throw that piece of the puzzle away because once it's gone, then you're never going to finish the puzzle. You can't get it framed and glue it and all that and put it on your wall and all that stuff. I don't know if you're a puzzle person. (laughs) My son is. We were just doing, we were doing a prairie puzzle last night. Ah, there you go. One famous example of how the ecosystem is one big puzzle deals with the gray wolves in Yellowstone National Park. Until recently, there were no wolves in Yellowstone. In the late 1800s, a U.S.-backed expedition to the area decided that the wolves were a threat and hunted them to eradication. All the better for the animals the wolves hunted, right? The elk could finally graze in peace. Well, they did, and the elk population exploded. They ate all the bark and leaves off of the trees and nibbled on the saplings, which kept new trees from growing. Without trees to make their homes, the beaver population declined, Without beaver dams, the rivers changed shape. All the while, scavengers like eagles, coyotes, and wolverines suffered because they couldn't eat scraps the wolves left behind. And on top of all of it, the elk suffered because they were eating all the food they had available. That's why, in 1995, biologists reintroduced the first eight gray wolves back into Yellowstone. 
In the years that followed, the elk population has come down, the trees came back, and the environment has transformed. It just goes to show that killing an inconvenient species can lead to side effects you can't begin to imagine. It's really worth reading the whole story about the gray wolf's reintroduction to Yellowstone on Curiosity.com. So the other part about saving endangered species is we were in the wrong, right? So we humans drove almost the ferret to go extinct. They drove this extinction. And so ethically, we should try to, to fix that and reverse that. And so that's part of our efforts, too, is right to save this unique species, because one, we're at fault for doing this. It wasn't something that naturally was going to happen. We poisoned out their, their prey species and set this whole spiral downward. Yeah. How many samples do you process every year? At the zoo? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They call me the poop hoarder because, one, once I have these samples, I can't throw them away. Hoarder? How many samples so do you have? We have about, I want to say we do about 10,000 samples a year. Wow. Every year I buy a new freezer. And <laughs> I have about 15 freezers at the zoo. And they're just stashed everywhere I can. And the zoo is so great. And they just they, they enable me to do this maybe a little too much. I literally go to my freezer and it's like, well, I, I can ask so many other questions because you can't go back in time. It's so important to, to keep these samples. And that's what I keep telling myself. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so I just buy a new freezer every year to hoard these samples. And it's just because we can go back in time and ask a different question or we can say, oh, we didn't ask that question. And now there's changes and maybe we should go back or something's changed in the lab and we need to redo everything to make it the same as the future is going to drive the analysis because there's, you know, chemical changes and all that kind of stuff that can happen in the lab. So, you know, we, we process a lot and now it's not just poop. So now we're doing hair, we're doing toenails because that's another keratin product like hair. We're doing horse hooves. We're doing feathers. Wow. Yeah. So some of these samples I don't have to store in the freezer, which is good, but now I'm filling up cabinets. So I don't know about cabinet space, but we're going to have to look into more of that, I think. Wow. Yeah. You're going to run out of room. And and, and so if, if you want to test one piece of whatever it is, a feather or, or, mm -hmm. or a fecal matter or whatever it is, whatever you're testing, you would add like different chemicals to test different components of it. So it's not like you just like run it through one machine and it gives you every piece of data you can get. Right. Right. Yeah. Because we have different hormone analyses that we do. So if we can ask a stress question, but then we can ask a reproductive question. We have to run the sample again. Most of the time we're processing any kind of material the same way. It's just slightly modified, you know, like the hair, hair is incredibly hard to break up. And so we had to get a special machine just to pulverize hair. Uh, I know it's just like, you know, these nerdy things that we have, you know, it's like my, my hair pulverizer, you know, now it, it does uh, toenails and it does hooves and even does the small poopers. Wow. Yeah, so we study small poopers and their, their feces can be kind of too small to smash up. I was going to ask because we've got a we've got a world famous aquarium in Chicago. I'm sure they're conducting similar research behind the scenes at the aquarium. But can you measure a fish's excrement? Is yeah, well, we're actually um, you can. Or do you help with that? Is that we do they call you we, up? We're not really partnering, partnering with the shed right now, but I'm trying to use my frog swab method on fish. Okay, and we're also maybe trying it on things like octopuses and stuff. Okay. Yeah. I don't really know much about how, yeah. how fish You know poop. what's really cool, though? I mean, that, you know, I'm pretty geeky, but they, they have, you'll appreciate this. They have um, the scent dogs, mm -hmm. and they put them on boats. They can smell whale poop from miles away. Seriously? Yes. And that's how some of the research, like Dr. Sam Wasser at University of Washington, 
he is studying whale stress by using these scent dogs to find the poop. And again, that's important to measure the whale stress because that's an indicator of the health of the environment. Right. And, and the issues they have with boating and, and commercial boats and ecotourism, too. And so, you know, it's so important to connect people with nature, but we have to have a balance, right? So we're not imposing so much on the animals that they can't do what they need to do. So he's testing all that and using dogs. I think that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Dogs are just amazing anyway. But. <laughs> they really are. Mm-hmm. Well, is there anything we didn't get to about your work at the zoo or anything that people ask you about a lot where you're like, you know, I should just let people know about this in general, about your work at the Lincoln Park Zoo? No, I mean, I think one of the things we specialize is designing these non-invasive methods that are field friendly because it's so challenging to collect samples from the field. So the zoo, it's very easy, right, for me. I mean, like Dr. Poopers requesting a bag full of rhino poop. I mean, that's, of course, they have freezers available for them to put it in. But, you know, how do you study these animals when you don't want to hold them overnight, right? Or with the rhino, the black rhinos in, in, in Africa, we didn't even see them. So how do you study something you don't even see? So you can use feces. It's an amazing thing. Right. It really is. You can do you can learn so much about them. And there's all this microbial research that you probably have heard about, about how important are our microbes in our body to digest food. They also regulate stress responses. And so we can look at an animal's health. We used to think these microbes were like mostly pathogenic and causing illness, but really they're helping us digest our food. And if you've ever been on a diet and then restricted yourself, you know it's those microbes in your gut saying, I need sugar, I need sugar, right? And so they're the ones driving a lot of our, our behavior too. And so we're just now trying to connect these things and, you know, feces, you can learn all this non-invasively. And that's what one of the things I love about my job is they don't even know what I'm studying about them. <laughs> well, I want to wrap up with the curiosity challenge where I'm going to ask you a fun little trivia question about something I learned about on curiosity.com. In April 2017, Oregon Live reported that the Portland City Council unanimously approved the construction of a $9 million facility. It's designed to convert something into natural gas for the first time to lower the city's carbon footprint. Can you tell me what they designed to convert into natural gas? You're asking me? Yeah. (laughs) I think maybe trash or is it maybe feces? The, the wastewater treatment, the gas from... Very, very close. Uh, and basically, yes, I thought you'd enjoy this question because Portland's garbage trucks could soon be fueled by poop. In fact, it is designed to convert methane gas from Portland's sewer system into natural gas. And city officials were planning on selling the gas through a Portland-based distributor to organizations that plan on replacing diesel to fuel cars, buses, garbage trucks, and other vehicles. So they're making money while saving the environment which That's, is pretty cool. That is really cool. Yeah. So that was a year ago now. Uh, hopefully they've made some good progress. And I believe you brought a question for me. Yeah. So I'm pretty much love my job. And so that's what I do. So having to come up with a trivia question that is not job related was challenging. And so the only th- the other thing in my life besides work is horses and my five-year-old son, who has really gotten interested in the classic Scooby-Doo's. Ooh. So I was going to ask, you know, who... Was the voice of Shaggy. Who was the voice of Shaggy? The original. Was it like a big celebrity? Mm. Well, should I know yes, this? Yes, you should know this. Real? Okay, I'm trying to think of his voice. Well, I don't know, guys. Oh, my goodness. It was Hanna-Barbera, so it probably wasn't a big Disney or Warner Brothers voice. Shaggy. Get, do you want to hit? Oh, wait, it was a Cheech or Chong. 
Nope. <laughs> is he a radio celebrity? Ooh, I am stumped. Are you ready? Casey Kasem. Casey Kasem? Yes. No way. Yes. That is a fabulous trivia question. Good, because I was really, I had to ask my husband, he's like, well, ask him what Bono's name is and all this stuff. All he could think of was music <laughs> trivia. And I'm like, it could be sports, it could be anything. And I'm like, I can't think of anything but like the weird facts I know about biology. So <laughs> so the only other thing in my life is my son and he's watching these Scooby-Doo's and he loves it. I'm just kind of surprised he's not scared of the 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 ghosts or anything in there. And so it's probably not that educational, but it's fun. So trivia is supposed to be fun yeah. at, and educational. And if you had asked me a music question, I guarantee I wouldn't have known it. I'm really, really, really bad at that. Well, thank you, Dr. Rachel Santemeyer, director of the Davies Center for Epidemiology and Endocrinology at the Lincoln Park Center in Chicago. Thanks for joining me on the Curiosity Podcast. Thanks for having me. This week's extra credit question comes from a different sort of audience, the people in this office. We get into some pretty deep rabbit holes here at Curiosity, and our latest one is about magnets. First of all, how do they work? If you hold two magnets so they repel each other, do they also repel all the air molecules between them? And if you melt a magnet, does it stay magnetic? I actually have the answers to these questions, and you can hear them after this. Hey, Curiosity Podcast listener, we're going to do something different. You're going to learn something new and exciting and get smarter in 10 minutes or less here on the Curiosity Podcast. Yeah, every day we publish five articles about something new you can learn every day on Curiosity.com and on our app. And we're going to bring those lessons to you on the podcast. So rather than just get one big deep dive with an expert guest every week on our podcast, you'll be able to learn a little bit of something every day. So check your feed and in the morning... If you're driving a car and you can't read Curiosity.com, you can always listen to the podcast. It'll be a very different Curiosity podcast experience, but Ashley and I will still be the ones doing it, so you'll hear some familiar voices, and we really hope that you enjoy a new direction. We're just going to see how it goes. Please stay subscribed. Tell your friends all about it. Give us five stars and do all those other things that everyone on the internet tells you to do, and we will talk to you very, very soon. I'm back with the answer to our extra credit question. I hope it's good enough to stick on the fridge. The question basically came down to magnets. How do they work? The answer can get pretty deep, but we'll stay surface level. A magnet is an object that produces a magnetic field around itself. A magnetic field is basically a force field of electric charge. And that charge comes from charged particles like electrons, which have a negative charge, and protons, which have a positive charge. These particles are basically tiny magnets. And with the right number of each, they can turn atoms into tiny magnets too. If you line up those tiny magnet atoms so that their positive and negative charges all face the same way, then you've got a big magnet. If that magnet's field goes in the same direction as another magnet's, then they attract. If they go in different directions, they repel. That answers one of our questions. If you melt a magnet, the atoms will no longer face the same way, so it won't be a magnet anymore. As for what happens to the air between two repelling magnets, well, air, for the most part, isn't magnetic. Nothing happens to the air molecules between two regular magnets. And there you have it. If you have a question about the world that's been nagging you, send it in to podcast at curiosity.com and I might answer it on a future episode. We're going to be back next week with another full-length episode, just like you've been used to for the last, I don't know, 10 months or so. But again, keep an eye on your podcast feed because we're going to have a lot more new, innovative, exciting ways to learn something new every day 
from Curiosity.com on the Curiosity Podcast. Oh, I just remembered. I have a bone to pick with you about the interview. You have a bone to pick with me about Dr. Poop? It's, what what it, happened? Well, as someone hailing from the Pacific Northwest, I want to tell you that it's pronounced Oregon. What did I say? He said Oregon. Oh, no. I didn't mean to do that. I just want to wanna stand up for all my Oregonian friends. I apologize <laughs> to all of our Oregonian friends. Oregonian. Oregonian. Oregonian sounds like a J.R.R. Tolkien creature or That'd something. That'd be cool. Ore- Oregonian? It's kind of or- like going to Narnia. Wait, that's not right. <laughs> Narnia is not J.R.R. Tolkien. I'd like you to apologize to all of our Lord of the Rings listeners. All right. Well, now we're even. All right. Now we're even. Anyway, we'll be back with more fun and learning on the Curiosity Podcast. I'm Cody Goff. I'm Ashley Hamer. Thanks for listening. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.